Hey, welcome to Boston's Race Into History, a preliminary election preview with the GBH News Politics team. I'm Adam Riley. I'm going to be facilitating tonight's event. We're going to start off by hearing from my GBH News colleague, Soraya Wintersmith, and from John Keller, the political analyst for WBZ-TV and CBSN Boston. They are going to discuss how Boston's mayoral race got to the point where it is tonight on the eve of the preliminary election, with polls showing Boston City Councilor Michelle Wu holding an overwhelming lead, looking like she's going to cruise into the final election in November, and then three other candidates, Acting Mayor Kim Janey and City Councilors Andrea Campbell and Anissa Asabi-George, in this really intense fight for second place. After that, Steve Kazala, the president of the Mass Inc. polling group, is going to do a deep dive into some numbers and some variables that could decide the outcome tomorrow, but maybe haven't gotten the uh, attention that they deserve up until now. By the way, uh, if you signed up for the event, you probably saw we were going to have Yahoo Miller, the senior editor of the Bay State Banner, on with Steve. Unfortunately, Yahoo had something come up at the very last minute and is not going to be able to join us tonight. Uh, hopefully, we'll fold him in in the future. And in the interim, you should be reading everything that he does election-related for the Bay State Banner, if you're not already. After Steve brings his numerical wisdom, Erin O'Brien, she's a UMass Boston political scientist and the author of the upcoming book, The Politics of Massachusetts Exceptionalism, Reputation Meets Reality, which is coming out next spring. She is going to join me along with Jax Van Zant, the host of the wildly influential politics and Prosecco video cast. And the three of us in that segment are going to look at what is likely to change in the lives of everyday Bostonians or ordinary Bostonians on an everyday basis if and when Boston elects its first mayor of color, perhaps its first female mayor, uh, and what is not going to change. Then after that, we'll bring all the panelists back in. We'll be talking amongst ourselves, giving people a chance to maybe weigh in on things that they had wanted to weigh in on but weren't involved uh, with. You know, If they weren't in a given panel but they want to respond to a point, that'll be their chance to do it. And also our chance to answer the questions that you have submitted. So by all means, submit them early. The earlier you submit them, the more likely it is we'll be able to get to it. And so let's get things started with Soraya Wintersmith. She covers Boston City Hall and the Boston mayoral race for GBH News, and John Keller, the political analyst for WBZ-TV and CBSN Boston. Assuming that the polls are right, which is obviously a big and potentially risky assumption, how exactly did we get here with Michelle Wu looking like the race's clear and overwhelming frontrunner and Acting Mayor Kim Janey and City Councilors Andrea Campbell and Anissa Asabi and George locked in this pitched battle for the second spot. Well, Adam, first of all, thanks for having me uh, and good evening to everyone. The uh, ascendance of Michelle Wu certainly shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. Uh, two consecutive city council races, she's topped the ticket as, as the late city councilor Dapper O'Neill uh, used to say about his own votes in council races, they, they don't count her votes, they weigh them. She gets so many votes. And she also put on quite the muscle flex back in May when nomination papers were released. Within 24 hours, 
her campaign had returned them with more than enough signatures to qualify her for the ballot, way ahead of any other campaign. By comparison, Kim Janey's campaign had to go out and, and hire uh, signature gatherers to assist with their effort. As much as Wu's ascendance is not a surprise, Kim Janey's uh, presence sort of in the pack uh, struggling for that second spot is perhaps the biggest surprise of the race. And it raises, uh, I think, a very interesting question. Just about everybody in the punditocracy, whatever that is, in Boston, including yours truly, thought that when Council President Cheney became the acting mayor back in March, uh, that this would be a huge advantage. And the reason we all thought that is in 1993, uh, Tom Menino, like Kim Janey, a district city councilor, like Kim Janey, little known to most people citywide, uh, became the acting mayor and parlayed it into a fairly easy uh, victory in both the preliminary and the final. Uh, the differences here are, first of all, a matter of timing. Menino was acting mayor for about uh, seven weeks. Uh, Kim Janey's uh, going to wind up being acting mayor uh, for uh, more than six months. And Menino was able to avoid uh, potentially damaging controversies and just spend his time going after popular enemies and uh, cutting ribbons and doling out money. Uh, Kim Janey's had to deal with the controversy over the police commissioner, uh, uh, a controversy over the Boston Latin admissions uh, scheme, uh, and not to mention the coronavirus. So uh, I think those are some basic markers of why we are where we are, Adam. Thank you for that. Soraya, does your read on how the race got to where it is tonight, does it jive with John's or uh, do you have a different take? My takes are always going to jive with John's because he's been around <laughs> forever, never going to say anything to the contrary to John Keller. Um, the only thing that I would say is different is that Ricardo Arroyo, the city councilor who ended up endorsing Kim Janey was among the first to bring up the idea that even though incumbency can be an advantage, she still has to do a good job while she holds the seat. And so there's no guarantee that even though she will end up having been the uh, acting mayor for about six months, it's not guaranteed that people will love her and think that she did a good job because she has to prove herself. And as John mentioned, the police commissioner, uh, the resulting lawsuits from that situation, having to deal with the pandemic and decide whether to open the city, weighing public safety versus the concerns of the economy. I think in the last couple of weeks, she made a comment that kind of set the public health sphere off comparing uh, vaccine passports to some other historical situations where people have had to present paperwork, um, even though she didn't say it eloquently. I think she was getting at the idea that people of color would likely be disproportionately impacted if we were to enforce a new rule. And if past is any indicator, then there is some accuracy to that. But she didn't express it quite as eloquently as she should have, and that got her into trouble. And all these things added up, I think, could logically explain where we are with Kim Janey having to fight for that second place spot. She likened vaccine passports 
to birtherism, right? And men, made mention of Donald Trump. And your point is, is well taken. I remember when that kind of popped as a story, my first reaction when I'd heard her comments or heard about her comments was, oh, I can't believe she said that. And then I tried to think through the point that she was making. And as you mentioned, there is a legitimate point there. That's why it took so long for Massachusetts to get a hands-free driving law because people were worried that as pretty much always happens, the enforcement would fall disproportionately on people of color. But as you say, the, the way she framed it for me, that looms large as sort of a, a seminal moment in this race. I know that there has been concern among a lot of Black political leaders in Boston that when the time came for uh, the possibility of electing a, a Black person mayor, that the Black vote would split. And there, was an, there were two attempts, protracted attempts, to prevent that from happening this year. But it doesn't seem like it's going to happen, right? I mean, it, it's entirely possible that, and this is speculative, but uh, not illegitimately so, I don't think. You could see um, Kim Janey and Andrea Campbell giving up a pretty much equal share of the vote and Anissa Asabi George sneaking into the final, right? You can see that. It's funny. It's been like the contest within the larger race, these two women sort of battling it out, not just for Black voters, of course, for all portions of the electorate that they might appeal to. I got asked a similar question earlier today. And I think if anything, folks in Boston who really wanted to achieve the reality of having a black woman sit in the mayor's seat are gonna have flashbacks, I think, to 2013 when people were staking their hopes in uh, Charlotte Golar Ritchie, thinking that she was highly qualified and she ended up finishing in third, I think, behind Marty Walsh and the man that he ended up going on to beat, John Connolly. That, that's right right on the money point by Soraya, because if you go back and look at the numbers in 2013 in the preliminary, not only was the Black vote splintered, uh, and I would add the Latino vote as well, uh, was divided up among multiple candidates. Um, John Barros, of course, was in that race and, and got his share of, of Black votes. Uh, but um, the vote was splintered across a variety of demographics, and I think that's relevant to what we're seeing here. Let's just talk about Campbell versus Janey. What is Kim Janey's brand in this race, of beyond being the acting mayor? Is she, she's not the most sort of, uh, I don't want to say radical, because none of them are radical, but she's not the most, uh, for instance, uh, outspoken critic of the police, that distinction belongs to Campbell. Uh, she's not the most avid defender of the police, that's a Saibi George. She's not, uh, in terms of her presentation, the, the livest wire in the race, although she certainly has her moments, and I think her calmness and poise are among her, her attributes in this race. So. This is just to say, I think she's kind of been caught in the middle. The black vote is splintered. The um, uh, other elements of the vote are splintered. Uh, and there's Michelle Wu, who is mopping up with the youth vote, mopping up with newer Bostonians, uh, people that just moved here within the last 10 years. And she's sort of sui generis. She has the two citywide runs where she topped the ticket, so people know her. And, and so everyone else has been left fighting over the same turf, and it hasn't split in a very propitious way for the Janie campaign. 
Soraya, I want to ask you a, a question which is partly political and, and partly personal. I'm wondering what covering this campaign from, um, I guess I should say back when uh, Michelle Wu and Andrea Campbell were becoming the only candidates in the race to say, yeah, we'll run against Marty Walsh if need be. From that point, through Kim Janey becoming the first black woman to lead the city at length earlier this year, to where we're at now, what's it been like as a black woman to watch this really remarkable moment in Boston's political history? As a reporter, it's definitely a fascinating dream. I think I've said before that a lot of us get into the industry just so that we can have a front row seat to anything that's historic that happens on our beat. And so it'll be great uh, when the Netflix special comes in the next 20 years and they say, where were you when Boston's first non-white male mayor was elected? And then you and I can share notes. I will say it's also been fascinating seeing when I'm out with candidates, particularly John Barrows, who fun prediction, I think that he will surprise a lot of people, perhaps not win, but maybe get more than polling suggests. I have observed how organically Black men in particular sort of flock to him when he is out in public in spending a couple of hours with him in his home turf of Roxbury unprompted people would walk up to him, black men would walk up to him and say, hey, I hear what you're saying about not feeling welcome in all parts of Boston. I remember that. I remember getting off the bus and being chased with hockey sticks or rocks. And it's really good just to see you, no matter what happens, it's good for me to see you. It's good for my kids to see you. I'm sure that uh, both Andrea Campbell and Kim Janey are getting the same sorts of comments from black women. Um, and that's been heartwarming and fun to watch. <laughs> Before we wrap up, uh, let's, let's, I'll do the cheap host question and ask you guys to predict turnout. And I wanna make sure that I contextualize it correctly. Back in 2013, when there was this great big crowded field, which we've mentioned earlier, that got winnowed down to two candidates, Marty Walsh and uh, John Connolly, and Marty Walsh eked out this squeaker of a win. Back then, 113 people voted. Up in, sorry, let me, let me uh, add some zeros. Wait a minute 113,000 people <laughs> voted in that prelim. Secretary of State Bill Galvin came out today and said he thinks it's going to be, you know, 100 to 110,000 in this uh, prelim tomorrow, despite uh, all the history that stands to be made and is already being made. Do you guys think turnout is actually going to be less than it was in 2013? Well, I don't know if it's going to be less. I will say I've been surprised at the lack of buzz surrounding a race that to me is the most buzzworthy mayoral election of my lifetime. And as you know, I'm well over a hundred years old. So that goes back a long, long way. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the lone TV debate before the preliminary last Wednesday night on channel 10 uh, did very poorly in the ratings. From what I'm hearing, early voting, which is allowed this year for the first time in a mayoral preliminary is is coming in and not exactly uh, in a tsunami. Uh, we'll see, maybe that'll change. I think we're learning first of all that uh, the emergence of non-white political power in Boston has been an ongoing story for a while. It's not new to this race. To the extent that it's maturing, uh, it's dangerous to try to stereotype it. Uh, the idea that 
all black voters in Boston were going to somehow be galvanized behind a single candidate. That's never worked. And I don't think it was going to work here because black Boston is a diverse array of people with different backgrounds, different demographic streams. I would predict uh, a, a fairly average, maybe better than average turnout. And I wish we had more time because one other factor that I don't hear anyone really talking about very much is to what extent is tomorrow or even November gonna be a referendum on the Walsh mayoralty? Because after all, it's entirely possible one of the two finalists will be the de facto endorsed candidate of Marty Walsh, and that's Anissa Asaibi George, who's, I think his mother's endorsement is, uh, uh, suffices as a stand-in for Walsh's. Keep that question in mind for when we bring people back and, and have hopefully a big chaotic and enjoyable fray. Saray, you get the last word here. Do you think turnout will exceed Galvin's uh, expectations? And uh, I'm curious about whether you sense that same lack of buzz that John mentioned. One, I am hopeful that the Secretary of State is wrong and that we will see, if not at least 30%, then maybe even as much as there was in the presidential election. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful uh, for increased civic engagement. Soraya Wintersmith and John Keller, thanks for kicking this off. Uh, take, a, take a break, have some air, and then come back and sit attentively by your screens so that we can get you in when we bring everybody back. But thank you both. Now, let's move on to Steve Cazella. I'll get personal here as we introduce Steve. Like a lot of pundits, I think I qualify as a member of the punditocracy that John Keller referred to. I tend to focus on big, obvious, and very easy to understand numbers, turnout, poll top lines, that sort of thing. Steve is a infinitely more subtle, mathematical, and systemic thinker, which is why he is here tonight. Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group, you polled this race from its very, very earliest days, even before Andrea Campbell was an official candidate, up until now. Tell me and our audience some of the numbers or some of the variables that you think are going to be really important tomorrow when it comes to deciding who goes on, but maybe uh, haven't gotten as much attention as they should have, at least so far. Yeah, thank you, Adam, and thank you for the very kind introduction. Um, the, the going back to the beginning, the number that's really stuck out has been the degree to which Michelle Wu is very well known. You know, that's been true um, going all the way back to last year before we really knew what the future was going to bring, and before we knew that Marty Walsh wouldn't be running in this in this election. So that that's certainly continued to be true. Um, the thing that's really the most interesting, I think, is, uh, is, is, I don't know how else to say it, that makes it sound more subtle than just turnout. We always make fun of ourselves for saying it, it's all going to come down come down to turnout. Um, but we just have to say it in this in this campaign. And th the thing that the polls are, are showing beyond just the, the consistency, there is a consistency in the sense that most of the polls now are showing pretty much Michelle Wu with a pretty sizable lead and the other three candidates kind of somewhere behind that. You know, they vary a little bit in terms of who's number two, number three, and number four, but it's sort of a jump ball is the metaphor that I, that's been used, um, or that's how the polls have shown it. But the other thing that the polls are showing that's that's quite interesting this year is that is questions about turnout and questions about how diverse the electorate is going to be in Boston this year. So if you look back, for instance, at the 
polls that were done before the 2013 mayoral prelim. If you look, for instance, at a poll that Suffolk University did and a poll that we did, we were both projecting about 60% of the electorate that year was going to be white. We didn't do a likely voter poll this year, but both Suffolk University and Emerson both did, and they're now showing that it's going to be somewhere around half or perhaps a little bit less than half of the electorate is going to be white. It's interesting because the city of Boston is getting more diverse, but not at that pace. You know, the difference between the percent white from 2010 to 2020 is about two points. It's not... 11 points or 12 points. So there's been this expectation in the polling that the electorate's going to be considerably more diverse, but no one really knows for sure that that's true yet. Would that assumption be based on, and I'm asking to get into polling secret sauce, how would uh, pollsters go about estimating what the, the racial composition of the electorate was, was going to be? Would they look at past trends? Would they go with uh, more qualitative assessment, like the ones that Soraya and John and I were talking about and say, okay, well, this is a historic race. You have a black woman as acting mayor uh, for a long time, for the first time ever. Therefore, we can anticipate that uh, a lot more people of color are gonna come to the polls or how would people in your field go about deciding that? Yeah, there's different ways. And some of it is kind of, is like you just described, where it is more qualitative. Others will start with basically all, all registered voters as their entire sort of polling universe, and then ask them a series of questions to assess whether or not they're likely to participate in this election. And others still will base it mostly on either prior vote history or whether you just right now aged into the ability to participate, mm -hmm. for instance. Um, but the, the problem with, or the potential problem with doing it based on vote history in this case is that there's an idea out there that the field of candidates that's running is going to bring out a very different type of voter or very, at least many more voters than would typically participate in this kind of election. Not that you're going to see this massive registration surge or anything like that, but you'll, you'll get more people who might participate in gubernatorial elections or who might participate in presidential elections, but not ones that would typically show up in a municipal preliminary election. So if you were only looking at people who have a history of coming out from municipal uh, preliminary elections or low turnout affairs in the past, you might, you'd end up with a more traditional electorate than the polls, the likely voter polls that we just showed in the previous screen suggest might show up. Let me ask you uh, about topic that John and, and Soraya brought up, the way that demography in the electorate corresponds with the, the choices that people made. When you first pulled the race for GBH, way back when, again, when Marty Walsh was still in office, only Michelle Wu had said she was going to run against him. One of the findings from your poll that I remember being really struck by was how in a hypothetical Walsh and Wu matchup, Walsh was going to get a massive share of the black vote. And I know you could chalk that up in part to the power of incumbency, um, but it struck me as, as noteworthy. Now, uh, as we discussed a few minutes ago, we've seen the black electorate not deciding to get behind one candidate in particular. Is there any, are there any insights that you can share based on your own work or work that other pollsters have done uh, about how likely demographic categories are to be predictive of the way a given voter is going to cast their ballot. 
One of the things that we can look at is just how many is relative turnout within each demographic group. You know, it, it, in addition to, you know, who the vote choice is, it's also just how many votes are there. So the thing we'll be able to look at, you know, Wednesday, late Tuesday night and even Wednesday is what's the relative turnout in more diverse parts of Boston compared to whiter parts of Boston? And how has that changed, if at all, since 2013? The last time, of course, we had an open mayoral election. You know, has the field this time actually changed who's who is turning out or is it does it look more traditional and the reason that that's important is because when we look at when we look at the poll that we did most recently which um took cast a very wide net and asked everybody if you were to show up even even though we're pretty sure you're not going to if you did who would you vote for and we found that within that group the most traditional municipal participants, Anissa Asabi George does much better with that group. So that then ties together with if, you know, Bill Galvin's Secretary of State, Bill Galvin's prediction is correct, that we're going to see very low turnout, 100 to 110,000 participants for, you know, 25% or less turnout. If that's correct, we see a very traditional turnout, then that's very different. That means something very different than if we see this massive swell of participation. That is actually a perfect opportunity for, for me to try to cue my favorite visual that we prepared for this event, which was inspired by Yahoo Miller, a senior editor of the Bay State Banner, who again, unfortunately, could not be here, had something come up at the last minute. But Yahoo, when he and I were chatting, sort of picking each other's brains before, uh, before tonight, Yahoo mentioned that in the past, Boston voting has corresponded to what he described as a donut pattern. The donut pattern involves high turnout, relatively high turnout in the neighborhoods on Boston's periphery, places like South Boston, West Roxbury, those communities that traditionally have cast votes in large numbers. And it's the communities in the middle, in the core of the city that have tended not to. Now, a point that Yahoo made to me is that in some recent elections, we've seen that change. We've seen the donut pull inwards, which I guess you could say is what's happening here underneath the sprinkles. Um, but I think that that corresponds, right, Steve, with what you're talking about. Keep an eye on what neighborhoods are coming out on mass. Keep an eye on what neighborhoods are exceeding past performance. And you might get a sense of what the outcome is likely to be. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'd like to know what the sprinkles represent in that visualization. <laughs> but I do see the point you're trying to make in it. It's correct. Yeah, it, it, it's what we've seen in the past, which is that turnout does often is often much higher sort of around the edges of the city. You know, the thing, though, it, the thing that that happened, getting back to your original question about about Marty Walsh and Michelle Wu's, uh, you know, the poll that we did back in in um, late last year uh, and their numbers, um, you know, the black vote put Marty Walsh in office. You know, if you just look at the at the majority white precincts in 2013, you know, John Connolly would be mayor right now. But when you look at when you add in the when you add the entire city and you look at the entire city and you add Boston's communities of color to that examination, that's what put Marty Walsh in office. So certainly there's there's just there's um, that historical note that I think we need to make there. That's a, a great note, actually. And it's especially interesting because as our panelists know, and as our audience members know, Anissa Sabi George has cast herself as Walsh's inheritor. So uh, you mentioned a concept that I found really interesting, which I wasn't familiar with, called, tell me if I get this right, outgroup bias. Can you explain what outgroup bias is and how it potentially could shape the results tomorrow? 
Yeah, so basically the concept there is something that researchers have been noting as becoming stronger in the last few years. And what it is essentially is the observation that many white liberal voters express more warm feelings towards towards non-white friends or non-white neighbors than they do towards their white friends or neighbors. Um, and, that, and that's kind of a difference between them and more conservative white voters, for instance. So the question, you know, getting at the idea that people within Boston are not monoliths, even if you know that it's a black voter or a white voter, the white vote does divide somewhat between a more conservative white electorate and a more liberal white electorate. And that more liberal white electorate can't necessarily be assumed or should not be assumed or expected to act in the same way as the more conservative white electorate. Stick around. We're going to bring you back in, go get a drink of water or something. But thank you for all of these insights. Now I want to move on to our final panelist-driven segment and bring in Jax Van Zant and Aaron O'Brien. Jax, as many of you will know, is the host of the wildly influential Politics and Prosecco videocast, which has been one of the breakout non-candidate stars, I would say, of this particular election cycle. Aaron O'Brien is, as many of you will know, a political science professor at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and the author of the forthcoming book, The Politics of Massachusetts Exceptionalism, Reputation Meets Reality. It's coming out this spring from UMass Press. Um, Jack Svanzant, let me start with you. What is your sense of how life is likely to change or remain the same for average Bostonians if and when the city finally elects its first mayor of color? I don't suspect it will change much. I think that um, I actually differ uh, from a few of the comments made earlier. I think a lot of times people assume that Black voters are a monolith, and we're not. We don't all vote along racial lines or gender lines. And I don't suspect that if it's a woman of color or if it's just um, any woman, whether it's white or, or Black or Asian, that that is going to make a difference. What people are looking for is who is going to be the adult in the room when needed? Who is going to be that person that is going to be able to speak truth to power, whether it's at the state house or at city hall? I think that's what people are looking for. I don't think much will change. People in Roxbury will still have housing issues and still be fighting gentrification. People in Dorchester will still wonder about small businesses. People in Mattapan will still wonder if they can walk to Mattapan Square and not only do it safely, but that there'll be a, a diversity of, of all kinds of businesses and, and people. I don't think much will change. A lot of these candidates for mayor were city councilors. So the expectation that there's gonna be some change when many of them have been in office for six years and less, I don't think you're gonna see much of a change. I remember watching the interview that you did with Anissa Asabi George, where you talked about her description of herself as a person of color, referenced sure. some skepticism in certain quarters when it came mm -hmm. to that description. I'm curious if you have a, a take on the field as a whole in terms of the candidates who are most likely to talk about the power of political representation who might be channeling Ayanna Presley, who said in her campaign against Mike Capuano, representation matters, yeah. and the candidates who, who kind of don't play it up as much. Is there a way to establish a hierarchy in terms of how eager they were as a group to talk about uh, the barriers that are being broken right now? Well, let me say that Anissa spoke her truth when I interviewed her. 
her idea, her identity and how she views herself, how she moves as a, a human being in this world is her truth that she was telling. Um, I fundamentally disagree with a lot of the candidates on, on um, their issues on racial lines, how they feel about social justice, where they were during the Black Lives Matter movement, where they weren't during the Black Lives Matter movement. I strongly believe that what you've seen over the last couple of years with this, quote, melanin wave of women of color running for office and winning is not exactly, it shouldn't be attributed to this race. Let's not forget that it was two women of color who kicked off running against Marty Walsh. I never want to take away from the fact that Andrea and Michelle challenged the status quo, which is exactly what people have been looking for. In Boston, there's this idea that if you're an incumbent, you're safe or you know, no one should ever run against you or you shouldn't run at all. Um, and I think that you know, they didn't run based off this melanin wave. They ran because what they saw as a challenge or they saw as problems in the city and they wanted to bring whomever and whatever that they were uh, to the table. But that's, that's exactly, you know, I think how, how we should look at this is not necessarily from the issue of, of ethnicity, but who is going to bring the best of who they are to the table, regardless if they're a woman or a woman of color. Erin O'Brien, what does the political science body of research tell us about how getting more women into elected office, whether it's legislative or in executive positions, changes the, the policies that get made? A, I've dreamed of that question. No one asked a political scientist that to, to go to the literature and be boring. But I won't be boring, but I will tell you what the literature says. Um, my colleague, uh, my new friend, um, talked about there won't be major on the ground change tomorrow if one of these, well, when one of these candidates is elected. And that is 100% true. Change takes a while. That said, we know when we elect women and women of color that policy does change, not always the vote outcome but that women, and especially women of color, are more likely to bring different policy issues to the fore. Uh, Andrea Campbell, the way she talks about her, bro her brother, it's not that the Walsh administration didn't take up criminal justice. They didn't do it in the same personal way. And Andrea Campbell might make that a top three issue, an agenda setting issue, whereas other candidates, um, white males, were more likely to make that a 10 or 12 issue. So what we know is different questions get asked at hearings. The composition of various boards and the bureaucracy changes. Um, and those have lasting effects. My colleague uh, also talked about, you know, it was uh, earlier women of color by getting on the council uh, that made these changes. And she's 100% correct. In political science, we call that critical mass and pipeline. Um, women have to be asked to run. Men are more likely with a thinner resume to think, oh, I should run. We've all worked with these men. Um, and then women with a thicker resume need to be asked. Um, and so what you saw with those women of, on the council is they got in the pipeline. It's not by accident. Four of those running were on the council. And once you reach a critical mass, 10, 15 percent, then policy does change. Then we get some of those outcomes um, uh, that we were talking about earlier. Also, once a woman of color is elected, does not make her uh, immune to being challenged on her issues, her policy. And I think that's one of the things that has bothered me mostly about this. When we see the debates and we see the forums, they're not really being challenged on their record. 
Because when you're running for re-election, you run on your record. When you're running just to be elected, you're running on a hope and a dream and a wish and an Obama live and let's all be peaceful and kumbaya. And that's Together right. we can, yeah. Right, and I, and I get it. And I, I'm such an Obama fan. However, a lot of these women have records. And many times we've seen throughout this election is they weren't challenged whether we thought they did the right thing or not. And so that's why I'm kind of looking beyond race and I'm happy to talk about it, but I'm looking beyond race because my question to a lot of these women is, well, you said you were going to do this two years ago and you haven't done that. So how can I believe that you're going to do it this way? I completely agree with your smize, but I think it's been different for Kim Janey. Ironically, the person with the shortest record as mayor has gotten, I think, the most pushback. She has gotten really tough policy questions, and I think you're 100% correct. It's a lot more fair to say, listen, you've been on the council forever. Cost of living is going up. Um, you know, the rent is still too is still high. Uh, those mm -hmm. issues, I think, are really fair to bring up, but I think an interesting dynamic of this race is once Kim Janey stepped into that four, you know, um, uh, the critics came for her, I think, in yeah. ways that they didn't come for the other candidates who are also um, qualified, as you said, with records. Yeah. And what's interesting is about when Kim came in, she she really rode a high for a couple of weeks. And I, I you know, said in the, in the, the Boston- I thought it felt Herald, like days. <laughs> <laughs> it may have for her. Um, I had said in the Boston Herald article that, you know, the honeymoon will be over. I I worked for Mayor Spicer. I helped to put her in office. I've already made history with putting a Black woman in a mayoral seat. And I can tell you from experience, it dies. Your, your honeymoon dies after a couple of days. People go after you. And I think what's unfortunate is that communities didn't rally around her to keep her uplifted. She sort of had to sort of navigate this world by herself. And, and that, that can be unfair and challenging sometimes. So... That's it. So you didn't you didn't get a sense that that um, there were some communities in Boston that had her back as the spotlight intensified and some of the stuff that she was taken to task for, this was Walsh holdover stuff, right? You know, her mm -hmm. power to to affect change quickly on some of these things was pretty limited. But so, Jax, just so I'm clear, you thought that people didn't have her back, broadly speaking. I feel like there were um, certainly communities that congratulated her that night on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and, you know, we're so great and the black woman's gonna be mayor. And, and what they didn't realize is that the work had to come with that and the critiques of that work, whether we thought it was six days, six months, six years was going to have to happen. And we didn't, and I say we as, as community, we didn't help her to navigate through that. I am in no way, um, saying that everything Kim has done has been great because I find some challenges with her candidacy. But I will say, having seen this, you know, time and time again, as I've built my political career, um, we didn't give her enough of a boost to stay there and to be critiqued fairly. I think a lot of people were just like, let's just jump on board and she'll, she'll just sail through because she's a Black woman. But Nobody votes. Well, I don't know enough people who just vote along racial lines anymore. Well, and a lot of those critiques came from individuals who were on the council and are women and, uh, well, the women of color on the council and then John Barrow's not being on. So mm -hmm. it, it, 
you're right. There's not that one-to-one -one ratio between like, there's a black candidate, all the black community is going for that, not a monolith. Right. But I, I think Kim Janey and, and I as a political observer was expecting critiques from white old guard Boston. I don't think Kim Janey expected the same degree of critiques from her left from the council. You know, right. like the, in June it was, they voted to say, we can take your power away. Most observers weren't paying attention to that. I guarantee Kim Janey was. So, you know, for me, is this success that you don't have to run as a sisterhood or is a sisterhood falling apart? I don't know. I teach women in politics. I'll let my students decide on that. But all those dynamics are at play in this particular race. And I think it's going to be fascinating what that means on the 15th for endorsements, because we only know two are getting through. When I worked for Terry McAuliffe, um, he used to always quote um, Al Pacino and um, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, when he said, you never... Uh, open your mouth until you know what the shot is. That's exactly how I think about politics. I never open my mouth and celebrate until I know exactly how many votes are in the tank. And I think right now, a lot of these candidates are basing it off of assumption, off of the history of Boston voters, and not really taking a look at how new voters, meaning millennials and zillennials, are voting and looking at politics. So I want to ask you, Aaron O'Brien, and you, Jackson Rosant, to stay where you are. And then I want to try to get the other panelists, if they've actually been good enough to stick around, to start drifting back in. The first question, what happens if the general is Michelle Wu versus Anissa Asabi-George? And anyone, hop in when you've got it. I mean, that's, the, I've commented on, on this already saying that that's, uh, I think that is a, uh, uh, I don't know if I'd call it a probability, but uh, I, I actually don't think Janie's going to get out. I think it's Campbell or Anissa George. Hmm. And uh, that, I think a lot of voters in Boston would be incredibly disappointed uh, because a Black individual didn't get through in a city that has um, uh, a very bothersome history on racial politics and has been so slow to integrate, especially towards the Black community, wealth inequality in Boston. Um, and so I think that's a real possibility. And remember in 13, it was Barros, it was Gola Ritchie, and someone else who I'm blanking on, Arroyo, who all aligned and went with Walsh. If that were to happen, then you would have Barros, Campbell, and Janie. If they were to form, form some, side, some sort of alliance, they could become uh, queen makers. But we're several ifs along. As someone who didn't grow up, in Massachusetts, but has made my adult home here. I, obviously a white male, I shudder to think of the way that final might be portrayed in the national media and the lessons that people might take from it, the takeaways that they might come up with. So I talked over someone, maybe multiple people. You know, maybe that outcome would speak more to the electorate's desire for something other than change. Think back to last summer, the protest sparked by the murder of George Floyd, uh, un unhappiness to say the least with the pandemic, uh, economic issues. Uh, you would have thought the environment was ripe for incumbents to get thrown out. Well, maybe elsewhere, but not in Massachusetts. Ed Markey breathes to re-election. Just about all the legislative incumbents who weren't under indictment uh, were re-elected last fall. So... Uh, and, and now fast forward here, is there a yearning to really shake up the, the Yahtzee board here in Boston? 
Maybe we'll be surprised tomorrow and in November, but I, you know, I don't know about that. Now, a desire for continuity uh, might redound to Jamie's benefit. She, after all, she's the incumbent, the acting incumbent. Uh, but I think it's more likely that it helps Michelle Wu, who, I, as I say, has been sui generis, and people know her, and they voted for her, and uh, Asaibi George, who represents a continuity of the Walsh era. I was nodding my head as Aaron O'Brien was speaking. I agree that it is a likely scenario that that's the matchup, only because when I think about where Asabi George has distinguished herself, particularly on police, like John mentioned, if you are a single issue voter who last year didn't think that defunding or reallocation of police resources was a great idea, that's your candidate. If you are a person who is really, really concerned about schools, well, who better to fix the system than somebody who has led a classroom for 13 years within Boston, um, in addition to people just flocking to her and liking her because she's the Dorchester neighborhood girl candidate. I think that it is likely. The only thing that keeps me from saying, yes, this is going to be it, is that when I talked to the pollster from Suffolk University, David Paleologos, he said that Wu being so far ahead might give soft supporters of hers reason to turn to their second choice candidate rather mm -hmm. than casting their ballots for Wu. And so in that way, soft voters for Wu might play a really powerful role in shaping who gets that other slot. I, I just wanted to say that I, I want to be super clear that if a Black woman doesn't you know, get through the primary tomorrow, this is not a lost opportunity. What this is, is a chance for communities of color to reassess how to build out Black power and a lot of Black political power. And what that means is a collaborative effort to not only stand together, but to bring issues of policy to the, to the forefront together. Right now, it seems as if um, everyone kind of operates in their own lane or they operate in a silo. And, and that's not what these new voters want to see. They want to see unification. Um, so I don't think this will be a lost opportunity. I certainly, in my lifetime, will believe that there will be a Black woman mayor in Boston. No one thought that that would happen in Framingham, and it happened. But I, I just want to be clear, I, I would love to see Andrea or Kim make it through the primary and really give a good fight um, to Michelle because she has had quite, quite a lead. However, I don't want anyone to think that this is a missed opportunity. This is an opportunity for us to build a better collaborative African-American and the diaspora political power. I want to get to the next question, maybe Steve Cazella will take a crack at it. I, I don't mean to pressure you. Um, it's actually an, an observation rather than a question. Um, an anonymous attendee says, thank you, Aaron and Jaquetta. I do believe your assessment is correct when saying Kim Janey was critiqued more, far more than the other candidates. I wanna ask everyone a question about that. My sense is that Kim Janey was critiqued far more than the other candidates because Kim Janey from the outset said, I'm not like the other candidates. I'm the mayor of Boston, I'm not the acting mayor. I am the mayor full stop. And therefore, when she did that, it was not surprising that people were gonna say, okay, well, she said that, that you know, she's got the job, she's doing the job in full, no asterisks. We're gonna evaluate her performance accordingly. Uh, 
am I am I wrong to think of it that way? I may be, and if I am, tell me that. I don't I think, think you're wrong. <laughs> you are I'm definitely wrong. right. <laughs> Holding the seat and being the pseudo incumbent, you definitely invite more scrutiny when you say I'm. What was the what was the Twitter phrase? I am acting. I'm not acting. Not acting. Doing. doing. <laughs> yeah, that definitely invites more scrutiny. I will say at the same time, I think people do generally not check their unconscious bias. And I think that mm. the black women on this panel will attest to people mm -hmm. being more ready uh, to challenge them and their decisions and their assertions simply because they are black women. Um, and so maybe I do remember a, an editorial that seemed to suggest that Kim Janey needed to be responsible for the text message scandal that uh, preceded her with the school committee members. And when I read that editorial, I thought, hmm, is that her job? That happened mm. before her. Is, her, is that her, does she need to solve that so that everybody will trust City Hall again? I don't uh, think that, that that's an example that I don't think was fair. Uh, and also, it's complicated. Uh, can, also the acting mayor has had to handle some wicked hot potatoes. Mm -hmm. Soraya broke the story uh, last spring about the daughter of Dennis White, the soon-to-be-ousted police commissioner, pushing back hard in defense of her father. And there was significant turbulence within uh, some quarters of the Black community over how that all played out. This was sort of uh, uh, Kim Janey's first publicity out of the box that she's going after a Black man. Uh, it, yeah. To put it, it, it kind of kind of bluntly, mm -hmm. and then the Boston Latin thing is a super uh, third rail issue across the city, uh, and uh, and COVID too. These are just tough, tough uh, polarizing issues, and there she is, right in the middle of the maelstrom. No wonder uh, she got she got uh, rained on. I wouldn't have hung my hat on whether they were calling me acting mayor or regular mayor or doing doing it mayor. I wouldn't have hung my hat on that. I would have just been about the work. And I think that maybe that may have turned a few people off, like saying like, is this about um, the work or is this about you? Um, and I think that, you know, there was really no evidence of, you know, one of the things black women struggle with a lot is imposter syndrome. Mm. Whether you are coming to the table completely, like uh, you own it, um, you know, that's still something that you struggle with because you are challenged, you are, completely critiqued at a higher level. Um, and then you have all these different things that you're balancing. Am I coming off aggressive? Is my skin tone too dark to be this aggressive? Like this, Ooh, so many other things that Ooh, are girl. Kind of all day, ma'am. <laughs> um, but you know, there are all these things that are happening. I wouldn't have hung my hat on the acting mayor thing. I think Kim should have been out the gate about the work and people would have then saw her in a more authoritative light. And that would have given her a pass on a few things. And the, the Dennis White, listen, nobody capes more for Black men than Black women. Nobody capes more for them. However, um, she had to, she was put in a tough spot. And again, she was doing this by herself. It was very hard to navigate. And I think what we could give her credit for is that she did stop and ask questions um, because she could have just done it and, and not had any, uh, any opinions at all. So... Um, in no way, and I've been very critical um, of, of what's happening up at City Hall. I just had one thing from a polling yeah, perspective, all, all the great comments that have been made so far, which is just um, because she came in initially not a particularly well-known candidate at the very beginning when she first um, you know, became acting mayor, 
the the things then that happen at that point represent a larger share of everything that a voter might know about her, as opposed to somebody who's been in office for longer or who's been running for longer um, and is already more familiar. So that if you if something happens or you participate in some event or make some decision, it doesn't have potentially as big of an impact on how people are thinking about you just because they've got a hundred other facts and a hundred other you know recollections about your record and the things that you've done in the past. That's really interesting and never would have occurred to me. All right, I wanna throw another one out there from another anonymous attendee. Which two candidates would be the most interesting discussion between Wednesday and November? Whoever comes in fourth place. (laughs) (laughs) What was the question again, Adam? (laughs) Who has the question question again? Which two candidates would be the most interesting discussion between Wednesday and November? And I'm guessing that this anonymous attendee means about the future of Boston and the big issues that are facing the city. I mean, it depends on where you sit politically. I think as uh, for a question of Democrats, and which is the city's largely Democrats, but for the future of the Democratic Party, I think Michelle Wu versus an Andrea Campbell would be a, just a fascinating um, look. You know, as Jax has said, um, you know, I work on a college campus. They are for Wu, and I work on the most diverse campus in New England. Um, young people aren't voting one-to-one in any of those ratios that in terms of ethnicity or race, they see her as the most progressive. They see her as unbendingly progressive, and that is something to be valued. Um, Andrea Campbell is uh, uh, a progressive Democrat, but not of that school. She's willing to, she will build coalitions. Um, you know, she came up of the city and uh, as a daughter of the city and talks more, Wu does as well, but talks about her personal experiences. For the Democratic Party, that's a fascinating race. For outsiders to the city of Boston, the narrative, Adam, I think you already hit it. If it's Wu versus Anissa George, uh, the national narrative will be that um, Boston wasn't ready. Yeah. All right. Anyone else want to take a crack at that one? And if not, that's fine. I think, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I just somehow created a message for myself. What do you want to do with Zoom CMFNXTZZ9, which is a bad sign. All right, you guys are still here. I have no idea what button I just pushed. <laughs> what are you I doing, man? I think the Zoom gods are maybe sending a message. So before, before we wrap up for the night, we've run through, or I think touched on most of the candidate uh, or audience questions. I'm just wondering if there's anything else that's on any of your minds as we head toward tomorrow. I know that you know we split this up so you didn't all get to be part of, of one communal conversation until here at the end. Any points that people want to make in closing? Yes. I'm really, uh, go, ahead. go ahead. Okay, John. we'll go Keller I'm and really Jan, or Jackson Keller. <laughs> I'm really concerned about voter turnout tomorrow. I think each of the candidates have a base. I think Kim is really relying on um, African-American senior voters. I think Michelle is looking for white liberal young progressives. I think Andre is looking for more middle-class white and blacks. I think they each have a base, but if they don't turn out, none of them are going to, um, and Anissa, of course, you know, trying to bring out that, that Southie, that, that uh, uh, Marty Walsh vote. Um, But if they don't turn out, (laughs) 
if they don't turn out those those bases and and really because I, I you know I didn't hear a lot of encouragement to vote early what I just hear are continuous commercials of their you know bringing in you know their story if they don't turn out those bases tomorrow this is another conversation we're going to have in another four years and I'm just I'm going to be bored with it by that time uh John Keller I think you were yeah gonna... I I would uncharacteristically like to close on an optimistic note. <laughs> I mean, as I say, I go back to the days when candidates like John Kerrigan and uh, Louise Day Hicks roamed the landscape. And when I think about these five candidates, I hope Boston voters acknowledge and understand and feel good about how excellent all five of these people are. And not to short trip the other four, but let's take the candidate who's polling the lowest. John Barros is one of the most impressive people in public life that I've experienced in my years of covering Boston politics. And, um, uh, you know, talk about being of the city and being a tremendous positive contributor to the city. So, uh, you know, if that's who's going to finish fifth, oh boy, it's an embarrassment of riches. And I think people should, should feel good about that. I think that's right. I also think um, we want turnout. We want turnout. Now, the first thing we should do is hold our elections in even years. It hurts uh, all these candidates that it's an odd year. But more importantly, for this particular race, there's good research in political science that suggests it's a little bit older. But if you like multiple candidates, you stay home. Most Bostonians have never had the problem of liking multiple <laughs> candidates. <laughs> um, so <laughs> low turnout doesn't necessarily in this particular race mean uh, I wasn't paying attention or, or throw out the bums. I don't like any of them. It could be that some voters thought, gosh, to you know, John's point, I like all five of them or at least four of them. I can't go wrong. All right, Steve Kazala, uh, Soraya Wintersmith, you guys want to get a, a final word in here? Yeah, I've got one small data point that I that I close with just because we've ta <clears throat> talked more about the other candidates, I think, in terms of what how their sh support is shaped. And that's that the one thing stuck out from our last poll, which was that when you narrow the electorate down to voters that the campaigns have actually contacted, Andrea Campbell's campaign, uh, Andrea Campbell's support is higher than it is if you're just looking at the entire electorate. So it's possible, um, you know, if, if we wake up on Wednesday and, and she has made it through to the final, that, that their campaign had a better idea or a better sense or just a better way of turning out the voters and a better sense of who those voters were likely to be. Interesting. All right, Soraya Wintersmith, you get the last word, no pressure. Ooh, pressure. I will go back to what we were discussing in our segment before you and I and John broke and just say, I lost my thought, but it came back because John had mentioned that we had a lone televised debate where we had five candidates and an hour to try and figure out the distinctions between them. I think that the media landscape here left a lot of the work of introducing the candidates to special interest groups and to nonprofit groups who hosted lots of forums and put questions to candidates, but I'm hopeful that from this point until the November general, that more outlets, GBH News is not exempt, more outlets will do a better job of putting more pointed questions to candidates to help the electorate understand their positions so that no one is confused because they all look the same. On that note, we are going to call it a night. Soraya Wintersmith, John Keller, 
Steve Cazella, Jax Van Zant, and Aaron O'Brien. Thank you all for being part of this. It was fascinating. I want to mention before we wrap up that Boston's Race into History is actually going to become a TV show, a limited run TV show, starting this Friday after the prelim. We'll take stock of what happened. It's going to be on at 7 p.m. on Friday on GBH News Channel 2, and we'll keep it going through the final election in November. Uh, a bunch of us are going to be involved in that. Soraya, Peter Kadzis, who shaped this event but wasn't here uh, on camera for it, Kelly Crossley, myself, and a number of other people. Again, thank you all for being here. Uh, I'm Adam Riley. Uh, we'll call it a night there. Get out and vote tomorrow if you live in Boston. Thank you. Thank you.